Welcome. We're returning to our series on ethnic justice in the kingdom of God. Um, We're on our fourth lesson here. Let me pray and ask for God's blessing, and then we'll get going. God, we thank you for gathering us. We thank you for the privilege of being your redeemed people, the body of Christ. We know that this is a redemption that affects us individually, certainly, but also creates a corporate reality of the church. It's a privilege to gather and give expression to our identity as Christ's people. We once were not a people, but now we are a people. And we had not received mercy, but now in Christ we have received your abundant mercy that washes away all our sins. So we thank you. And we pray for your spirit to work in our midst this morning as I teach, to give us all clarity of thought according to your word. Give me clarity of uh, communication faithfulness to your scripture and to wise application of it and give us all discernment uh, not only to determine what's true and false but also how the the myriad of ways that the things that we talk about this morning might play out in our lives in our unity as a body and in our interactions with others please help us to look more and more like christ in both our confession and our walk to the end that you'd be glorified through us in jesus name Amen. So, we've spent three lessons painting a profile of what's wrong with regard to race and ethnicity, both in society and in our churches. Uh, We began observationally. We were asking the question of what are some ways that we see this issue as an open wound, uh, a place where we see division and confusion and pain. And then we spent two lessons diagnosing what's going on. The first of these lessons was what we could call, we did some brush clearing, uh, dealing with some deficient diagnoses that some people are offering to what the problem is. Uh, We had on the one hand, the white supremacy everywhere crowd. And this is a kind of label, again, I made up, don't use it elsewhere and expect anyone to understand. But this is a position called critical race theory. Uh, that sees the issue through a lens where everything is race and power and oppression between groups. It's a very godless way of viewing the issue. But we also saw that there are some folks who have responded and reacted very strongly to CRT, and I call this the this-is-all-overblown crowd. And in some ways, some of these folks have swung too far in the other direction, and they've done things like neglecting the reality of systemic sin or uh, neglecting the possibility of unintentional sin, and neglecting the fact that experience does in fact shape our knowledge, even if there is an objectivity to, the, to what we're to know, our experience does actually shape our knowledge. Both groups have some truth on their side, and due to what one author, I love this, this phrase, he calls common grace and common sense, uh, even CRT, which is based on an atheistic outlook, it still incorporates some important observational reality that uh, we would be foolish to dismiss. Uh, then last week, we looked, so, so we, we talked about what uh, isn't the problem or bad diagnoses of the problem. Then last week, we kind of gave our own more constructive diagnosis of what the issue is. And uh, we looked at a series of ethnic sins rather than one big monolithic problem of racism where we can kind of say who is and who isn't a racist. Uh, we put it in more specific and clear biblical categories of sins that this consists of. 
Uh, now, putting it in these categories doesn't acquit us of sin. It doesn't allow us to go, ah, see, I'm not guilty of this. In fact, it demonstrates that in various times and various ways, these issues trip all of us up, or at least we have the potential to be tempted in all of these ways. Uh, in view of the pervasiveness of sin and the subtlety of sin as it works on our hearts, we're once again brought to the cross. Uh, whenever we study the Bible's doctrine of sin, we, <laughs> we're always brought again to the cross where we have to hear again God's verdict of no condemnation for those who believe in Christ. We also talked about some of the ways last week that individual ethnic sins can add up to create systemic or corporate ethnic sin and some of the special ways that these dynamics can challenge church unity across racial and ethnic lines. So that's what we've done the last three weeks. Um, This week we're turning the corner from problems to solutions. Uh, We're going to spend the rest of the series talking about how we should walk as Christ's people especially with regard to these challenging issues of race and ethnicity. And um, it'll be kind of parallel to what we did with the problems part. You know, we first did some brush clearing and said, what, isn't, uh, what are some bad uh, or, or, or just insufficient views being articulated out there? Let's critique those, and then let's try to build something that's more constructive. So today what we're going to do is look at some remedies and solutions that are being proposed by these two groups that we've already identified. Uh, the white supremacy everywhere crowd and the this is all overblown crowd. Uh, but first, before we do that, I do want to just comment, and you see in your handout this narrowing our focus, this point number two. Um, <clears throat> up to this point, we haven't really differentiated a lot between society and church. We've kind of said these are the issues going on in our society, and yes, they touch on our church. We did talk a little bit last week about special church unity um, challenges. But now when we focus on solutions, we are going to be a lot, a lot more narrow in terms of mostly talking about the church. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 5.12, uh, this is a context where Paul is dealing with a sin in the Corinthian church that necessitates discipline. And he says, he's telling the church to excommunicate a man for his unrepentant sin. And he says this, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? So in this context, he's explaining why the church, why he's telling the church to disassociate from a professing believer who is ongoing in a state of unrepentant sin, and they've gone through the church discipline process. But he's saying, don't disassociate from non-believers who sin, because that's what non-believers do. And he's explaining why, why those two different treatments. And the answer is that God has given us the responsibility to enforce righteousness in our own midst, not the whole society. The church is not entrusted with the task of of creating a righteous society. Now, that doesn't mean that Christians shouldn't have any concern about justice in our broader society, because we should. And it also doesn't mean that we shouldn't take any action within the means available to us to see righteousness done and justice done in our society, because we should. To whatever degree we have the ability uh, to make things right and just, it is pleasing to God that we do that in our voting, in whatever uh, roles we have in our workplace, etc. But the church has the special task of representing God. And our conduct is supposed to complement our confession. Our conduct is supposed to show how the gospel of Christ transforms us. And you hear in the language of Ephesians 4.24, 
restoring the image of God in us in true righteousness and holiness. You see in um, 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul is, this is one of those books of the Bible where the author gives a very explicit purpose for writing. And he says to Timothy, I'm writing these things. I want to come to you, but... uh, In the meantime, I'm writing this to you, he says, so that you, Timothy, may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. End quote. And that's an amazing picture, isn't it? That the church is, so we have the gospel, the doctrine of Christ, which Paul will go on to detail in verse 16 of 1 Timothy 3. But there's this doctrine that God has appointed the church to be the column or pillar that upholds this doctrine before the world. And uh, if you read 1 Timothy, what he's doing is he's talking a lot of practical issues about the conduct and life of the church together, including things like their officers and uh, how they care for widows and things like that. So the church has a special task of holding up the doctrine of Christ in our conduct uh, before the watching world. So the things that we learn in this class about how to deal with these issues of race and ethnicity, they certainly will have a place and implications on our interactions outside the church, our interpersonal interactions. And um, we as individuals may not be in a place to do much about systemic issues that exist in our society, but God has called the church to be a beacon of truth and righteousness and light that stands out in the world. So we should be, really the, the, the role of the church in the world is to be a very compelling counterculture that contrasts from the world in its darkness and attracts people to knowing God in Christ. So that's what our, our desire and goal will be primarily as we look at solutions. So bef- before we go on and, and talk about these different positions and their solutions, any thoughts or questions or pushback about that matter or, or anything we've covered so far? Anyone bothered that we're not going to change the world? <laughs> we might change the world, or God might change the world through us, but it's through uh, the church being the church. Yeah, no. To, to comment, I, I read the book. Mm-hmm. And it, uh, it You're talking about Shai, Shai Lin's book? Yes. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, it really opened up my eyes to one thing anyways. He said that, uh, you know, he's, he's a black man. Mm-hmm. So he identifies with the ethnic group of, of black people. Mm-hmm. And he was saying, <clears throat> when he hears about, you know, unarmed people being mm-hmm. shot by police, mm-hmm. particularly when he hears about black mm-hmm. people, uh, he mourns because they're he's of the same ethnicity, mm-hmm. not not just because it's another person got mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. Uh, you might say a, a brother in in uh, being of the same uh, ethnic. Mm-hmm. You know that. Uh, so sometimes when we see the writing, though, you know you can't condone that. Mm-hmm. There is. If they have somewhat the same mindset, you mm-hmm. can maybe you say you can understand why they're getting getting sad and angry at the mm-hmm. same time because uh, a brother or a sister has been uh, killed, and 
doesn't seem to be any justice about it. Mm-hmm. That's helpful. Thanks for sharing that, Don. So Don's talking about Shailen's book that I, re- I recommended a couple weeks ago, and he gives his, he's, he's black, and he gives his testimonial experience of what it does to him emotionally when somebody in his own ethnic group is, say, for instance, a, a police killing by an unarmed person, and uh, there's a special layer of grief related to the fact that this person looked like me. And he, in his book, he does a really good job of untangling, uh, try not to to operate in generalities about police and things like that, but to still, there's a special layer of grief that he does a really good job of identifying that that's part of what makes our experiences so different in, in different ethnic groups. Yeah. Well, when we, you know, we read that in the Middle East, you know, that Christians are being killed for their faith. Mm-hmm. Well, in the same way, we might say we hurt because yeah. a fellow Christian is being killed. Right, and so we're it's there's a there's a, a different attachment. Right, when somebody when somebody shares something with somebody suffers for something that they share with us, it's going to hit us differently. Exactly, that's a, a really helpful point. Yeah, appreciate that. That theme's going to come up, especially as we get toward the end of this lesson. I hope that that you're anticipating some of that. Well, I appreciate that, Don. Um, let's talk about the first of these positions of white supremacy everywhere. Their solution, we could call this nothing but Jew and Greek. Um, and the, the, the term for what kind of CRT advocates propose is what we do about it is called anti-racism. Um, now, first thing I want to say about anti-racism, I, you know, I've read some proposals, some, some believers talking about what should we do about race, you know, and in the church in particular, some Christian kind of CRT advocates a lot of the things that they propose when taken in isolation just sound like reasonable common sense wisdom, to be really honest. Um, for instance, this, this one author says, make friends with people of different racial and ethnic groups than yours. And he, he doesn't just mean token friendships where you can just check off a box, oh, I've got, a, you know, I've got th- this group represented in my friends so I can feel diverse or whatever. The, the idea is people that, a uh, kind of friendship where you can have an open and honest conversation and really understand people's experience and perspectives. And I hope none of us would find that controversial, that that could be a wise thing to do. Uh, you also see them advocating awareness, things like learning about the racial history of our country, reading books that talk about some of these things. And again, I think we could all agree that would be a good and wise thing in, in certain ways. Um, a third, re- I think, reasonable suggestion that, that I encountered here was that we who are in kind of majority white church culture uh, learn from the theological emphases of church traditions of other cultures. Uh, For instance, he cites the experience of black Americans that has shaped the black church in such a way that lament and exuberant rejoicing both have very special places of prominence. And these are both biblical themes that we may or may not be very attuned to ourselves. And I would say this is fine as long as the standard is always scripture. Okay, we're not saying whatever, anything goes, whatever we find in any church culture. As long as the standard is, uh, is scripture. But the fact is every culture and stream of tradition has its blind spots with regard to which parts of scripture that were better and worse at reading and applying. Uh, so we should be willing to learn from the strengths of other groups. And this is, doesn't just go with different ethnic groups in our country, but other cultures in the world. We can learn from each other's strengths as long as they're biblical. So there's really some common sense being articulated and embraced here. Again, common grace and common sense. But the problem comes with how CRT goes beyond this common sense wisdom 
and integrates it into an all-encompassing worldview that bases justice on man's standard rather than God's. And I'm going to identify two problems here. This is where their solutions uh, kind of go off the rails. The first one is that in this system, race is all-encompassing. This is a tendency of this kind of anti-racism proposal. Race is all-encompassing. They make race too big of a deal. CRT promotes a way of seeing the world that's dominated by race. God ends up being subtly pushed out of the picture. And I'm talking about Christian or professing Christian advocates, not uh, secular ones. Of course, they're not talking about God. Um, but, but these proposals will end up embracing various forms of human activism. Really, what, what you kind of see, the picture that emerges is that they really suggest that we all become anti-racist activists in our society. So you hear things like Christians, we all need to throw ourselves deeply into political activism and the ongoing civil rights struggle. Things like fighting for change in police shootings, mass incarceration, and voting rights. We all need to speak up very clearly over social media whenever there's an act of racial injustice in the news, even if it's really complicated and we have limited information. Uh, We need to start new seminaries because the ones that exist are just hopelessly uh, entrenched in historical patterns of racism. We need to cancel or at least give warnings and give uh, heavy qualifications whenever we quote figures in church history who are uh, sullied by racism like slaveholders. And when we read over these proposals, I, I submit to you that you get this distinct sense that the, this effort could easily take over our lives, both individually and as the church. It would become the struggle of our lives. And, and this is even some of the language you see them using. One author says that the problems of systemic racism in the church and society call for making anti-racism not just something we do, but, quote, a way of life. And there's another author that calls for the church to reorient our whole identity toward being anti-racist. This is the tendency of this uh, stream of thought. Now, in this series, we've referred to the critique that's brought by some opponents of CRT and really some opponents of any ethnic and racial conversation at all, saying that it can easily become a distraction from the gospel. That was David's objection in week one. (laughs) He so aggressively... No, I'm just kidding. No, (laughs) David helpfully uh, brought that up. That's not necessarily advocated, but saying some people bring this up. Is this just a distraction from the gospel? And I have to say that when we survey some of these anti-racism proposals, the shoe can certainly fit, that it can become a major distraction from the gospel. Because at a certain point, we, re- we, we reach a territory where anti-racism displaces the gospel as the church's message. And anti-racist political action is displacing the church's mission of discipling the nations. Now, like I said, not all actions proposed by anti-racists are anti-gospel, but the full-orb vision of anti-racism, and I'll just say the full-orb vision of any man-centered system of activism, can supplant the gospel. The second critique against the anti-racism proposal is that solutions are racialized, not unified. That's the next thing in your handout. Solutions are racialized, not unified. So... What they do here is that they, I believe, ultimately they end up throwing oil on the fire of racial disunity. And this can be illustrated by the title of a talk that, that um, was given by a leading CRT espousing theologian, Can White People Be Saved? 
That was the name of the talk. It was at an evangelical institution, actually. Uh, yeah, not, not one that we would uh, be much influenced by, but it was an evangelical institution. Now, to, to decode this a little bit, just to be fair, we need to understand that in CRT usage, whiteness doesn't just mean individuals who have light skin. Remember that race is a social construct. So whiteness is a term that describes the whole system of domineering impulses expressed by European cultures in the past and present. So they would say whiteness is kind of this lump term that describes all sorts of oppression, oppression of blacks, of course, women in some cases, the environment, and so on. It's a domineering spirit of kind of European colonial heritage. So the message here is that we have to get rid of our whiteness to be saved. We can't truly be Christian if we're white. Now, to be fair, there is a grain of truth here. If we want to say one must repent of the desire to dominate and oppress others in order to trust Christ and be saved, I hope we could all agree with that. That's a sin. We have to repent of sin in order to have Christ. No problems there. But as soon as we attach a racialized identity to that sin, we're opposing the unity that Christ desires for his people. Now, the fact that this group of sins is named with a racialized label shows that ethnic unity and equality can't possibly be the result from this project. Uh, remember that, as I said earlier, in the CRT, a very classic CRT definition of racism is that it's power plus prejudice. And this means that there's no opportunity for racial minorities to be racist because they don't have the power to enforce it systemically. And that explains why the proposed solutions of we've got to get rid of our whiteness, it all goes in one direction. Again, in view of the, the Bible's teaching on the potential for all kinds of sin, including ethnic sin, in all kinds of human hearts, anti-racism isn't the solution we're looking for. Uh, the CRT project uh, of anti-racism is not a viable remedy for ethnic and racial injustice in our church, or, or disunity in our church, even more broadly. It contains some wise pieces of advice, but it ends up displacing the gospel with man-centered activism. And it maintains a racialized structure of dividing people up. It keeps dividing people up by race. As long as whiteness is the bad guy, we're not going to have ethnic unity. Remember Galatians 3.28, and this will be a key text we talk about more today. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And sadly, anti-racism replaces there is neither Jew nor Greek with there is nothing but Jew and Greek. That's kind of the, the title that I gave it. Functionally, there's nothing but Jew and Greek. So any questions or thoughts, responses, pushback? Maybe mischaracterize something or just something that needs to be clarified? Yeah, Smokey. It's usual. Um, I'm sorry. It, but what, what is the response to... Um, To the realization that throughout European history there has been a gradual, um, even frankly, not excusable but legitimate awareness um, of the inappropriateness of racism, mm -hmm. and also where there have been believers, you know, a guy like. Um, John Bunyan, I, 
I shouldn't say John Lennon. I forgot the guy. Uh, John Newton. I just read his... Uh, John Newton. John Newton. There you go. Thank you. Yeah. Um, that are struggling as a believer while they're doing this mm -hmm. and trying to figure out what, what do I do here? There's just been this gradual... Mm -hmm. And, and if, if these folks, I'm curious, really go to the extreme, they would throw out all of the teachers that they're using to form their sermons. So I'm just mm -hmm. curious about what you've read yeah. or if, if, if I'm totally going off the rails. Yeah, I, Smokey's question is what do folks like this do with figures? Basically the fact that, that um, there, there were figures in European history that ended up becoming opponents of um, like slavery and, and racial sin, like John Newton, who, you know, who repented of his, his uh, he had been involved in the slave trade. Uh, we could add people like William Wilberforce, who, who fought against the slave trade in the English parliament. Um, I don't know if I've seen anyone from that camp dealing with this directly. I, I think it would be fair to say that a lot of what, you know, you know, one response would probably be that there have been some individuals who have, um, you know, there are individuals who have done well, but then that's like a drop in the bucket compared with this whole tidal wave of, of, of racialized uh, kind of systemic racism in the other direction. I think they would just say it's too little. It's, it, it's, it's not anywhere near the whole kind of society-wide patterns of oppression. Um, yeah, I think that would be at least... There may be other responses they would give, but that would probably be at least one, uh, one way they would, they would deal with that. Yeah, but it does become, and you know, it becomes this purity test thing. And and I'm look, I'm not, I'm not denying that. I'm not saying we shouldn't be truthful and honest, and even let our opinion of some figures in church history be changed a little bit. You know, like I'm not saying that that we should ignore troubling things. I mentioned in week one, Jonathan Edwards was a slaveholder. Um, that matters. Okay, that matters about how we think of Jonathan Edwards. I'm not saying that we just dismiss all that and keep Jonathan Edwards as this unsullied saint that we can't touch. But I'm just saying there can be this reaction of this, this really aggressive kind of purity testing and certain people just get completely thrown out. Um, that can, that can be the unfortunate result of this kind of anti-racism agenda. Yeah. Yeah. Christina. Well, and I feel like that's a bigger issue like today, practically in, in things that yes, probably touch on racism that are also wider in that, mm -hmm. even in the sense of like as as there's so much pain caused sometimes by and damage caused by leadership in different churches mm -hmm. um, and as people realize this I'm, you know, as I can, etc. People going back and saying, hey, I know I received truth from this mm -hmm. and maybe I was saved under this mm -hmm. and now I'm like disillusioned yeah, <laughs> because yeah. this person's Fruit does not seem to be walk, walking with the truth that I've heard from them. Yeah. How much we, you know, it's like how we process those things can mm -hmm. be really, you know, detrimental or, or helpful to the mm -hmm. whole, even in, in remembering the gospel that we are saved by. Yeah, you're right. There's a lot of parallels with um, certain leaders that God maybe has used, like. Christian leaders, church leaders, God has used powerfully in people's lives, and then it turns out there was a really deep, deep patterns of sin that kind of came, came to light, and and the wheels fell off. 
And it can be just so easy. I mean, we just love to think in very simple terms about people, right? And go, this is a good guy, you know, and he can do no wrong. Or even if we don't think that literally, we want to kind of feel that way about that person. And then we start seeing this pattern of sin that we can go like, he's the devil incarnate, you know? He, and, then, and then we can, we can throw out everything and say there was nothing good here. Uh, and that can be a tendency with, you know, these high profile leaders who we, we kind of realize, wow, they weren't who we thought they were. And even in individual cases where people were under that teaching, it can be really hard to live with the like, God did good things, really genuinely good things in my life through the word administered by this person, but there were real patterns of sin. This person wasn't qualified. We now know. And there's real harm done. And, be, and just holding those together and being honest and humble about it, there's real harm done. And we're not going to just uh, whitewash it away, but we don't, yeah, we don't want to, we don't want to use that to deny that God did really, really true and good things. And it's the same with figures in the past, you know, figures in the past with really troubling history with regard to race issues as well. Absolutely. It's a good parallel. Um, and that's another thing Shailen deals with in his book, by the way. He deals with, you know, how he's a chapter called, like, is Martin Luther still my homeboy or something like that, where he deals with, like, because Martin Luther had some really troubling stuff on anti-Semitism. Anyway, just wrestling with that. It's really helpful. But let's talk about, um, let's talk about the other side, that this is all overblown side. Uh, and I would call this no such thing as Jew and Greek. Uh, that's kind of the tendency of this group would be no such thing as Jew and Greek. Uh, we've seen some problems with CRT and the anti-racism proposal. What about the other side? The real, again, the kind of strong, aggressive anti-CRT articulation we're seeing. A motto, I think this is a fair, hopefully, obviously hoping to be fair and representing all these folks. I think a motto you'll hear from these folks is just preach the gospel. Just preach the gospel. And they'll continue and say, Christ has already won our ethnic unity in the church. They'll quote something like Ephesians 2.14, for Christ himself is our peace who has made us both one, and that's Jew and Gentile in that context. He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And we read Galatians 3.28 a few moments ago. That's another major verse that they'll stress and say, look, there's no Jew and Greek anymore. Why should we stir up all this trouble and disunity by concerning ourselves with ethnicity? Our goal, what we should pursue is colorblindness. Just don't make an issue out of it. Now, this may sound, excuse me, this may sound attractive at first blush. This maybe resonates with you. It has Bible verses. And I will say there is a good deal of truth in this proposal. It's not by any means wholly wrong. And there's a good desire to, to think biblically about the unity that Christ desires for his people. But on closer consideration, I think there are three notable problems that we can identify here. The first one is that it espouses a misunderstanding of progressive sanctification. And that's a big term, progressive sanctification. You may or may not be familiar with it. But the the New Testament epistles deal with all sorts of errors and moral problems facing the churches. And you know what? When you read through all these epistles dealing with problems in the churches, do you know what, what you don't just hear? Just preach the gospel. That's not all that's offered. I'm not saying we move away from the gospel into moralism or something like that. The atoning death and resurrection of Christ to save from sin all who believe in him. That is the glorious truth that the, that the church has been given both as our, as our uh, source of life and our message to the world. But Christians do need more specific teaching and Christians need more specific effort 
to work out the implications of the gospel in our lives. So, on the one hand, we need more than just preach the gospel informationally. We need more information than simply the gospel. A book like 1 Corinthians is a good place to see. Even a book where he says, I, I, I resolve to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. But then, in that book, you see Paul dealing with all sorts of practical problems in the church. The Corinthians have a lot of practical problems. And he gives them much more specific content than simply the saving death and resurrection of Christ. Even though that remains the foundation of everything he teaches. Secondly, we need more, so we need more informationally. We also need more transformationally. Meaning, we need a lifelong journey of progressive sanctification. This is the term for basically, we've been made holy by status when we've come to Christ by faith. We've been made saints. But then we spend our whole life, by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us, walking out more and more in a practical way, living out that, that holiness that we have by status. That's what progressive sanctification is. We progress in being more and more holy in the actual character of our lives. And um, we need to keep learning how to turn away from sin. And we need to keep learning how to walk in step with the gospel, even if we already knew its doctrinal content from the beginning. And we, as we grow, we all who have experienced walking with Christ, we know that over the years we, come, we become more and more sensitive to the ways that we need to turn away from sin and walk in light of the gospel. So um, Galatians 2, 11 to 14 is a classic case of this. It both has to do with ethnicity and walking in step with the gospel. So this is Paul reporting to the Galatians about something that happened with Cephas, which is Peter. He says this, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For when... uh, For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? End quote. Now, wherever we see Jew-Gentile issues in the New Testament, we do need to be careful because the Jew-Gentile matter in the New Testament is an ethnic issue, but it's also a theological issue that has to do with who are the true people of God. Uh, there's, there are extra layers of complexity because of the covenantal history of Israel. But even though it's more than ethnic, it's not less than ethnic. It's still an ethnic issue, and it crops up a lot in the New Testament, including right here in Galatians 2. And it's amazing. Paul says that Peter, who was an apostle, and if anyone knew the doctrinal content of the gospel, it was Peter. (laughs) He was the first gospel preacher on the day of Pentecost, right? In Acts chapter 2. This Peter was leading other believers into conduct that was not in step with the truth of the gospel. What were they doing? They were creating ethnic tension, an ethnic division, actually, between Jews and Gentiles. They were afraid of the circumcision party, the, uh, the legalizers who wanted to make the Gentiles be circumcised and basically become Jews to become Christian. And Peter didn't want trouble with them. And he thought, oh, the word of us eating with Gentiles might, might trickle back to those folks. So I'm just going to uh, fix this problem by separating 
and uh, looking like good uh, Jews that wouldn't cause any controversy. But Peter is, Paul is saying that's a contradiction of the gospel. It's a living contradiction of the truth of the gospel. So preaching the gospel is necessary, but not in itself sufficient for working out sin issues in our lives, both individually and as a church. We need ongoing teaching and growth and ongoing maturity in walking in step with the gospel. That's one problem with just saying, just preach the gospel. Like, that will fix the problems. The second um, deficiency with just preach the gospel is that it misunderstands unity passages. There's a misunderstanding of these unity passages. Uh, The specific one I want to discuss is Galatians 3.28. And we've already heard from it, but I'll read it again. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And this group tends to take there is neither Jew nor Greek in an absolute sense. We should act as though the categories no longer exist, functionally. It's like they read it, again, as there is no such thing as Jew and Greek anymore. In Christ, those uh, categories have completely dissolved. But that's a mistake. Uh, This text, this verse gives three different points of contrast, and each one divides between two groups. So we have, first of all, ethnicity, who you have, Jews and Greeks. Then we have social status, slaves and freemen. And then we have sex, males and females. And in various places in Paul's letters, you're going to find him addressing every one of these six groups distinctly. He'll have a special word to say for every one of these six groups in various parts of Of his letters. In his own apostolic practice, he does not reflect what we could call colorblindness or slave free blindness or male female blindness. He's not insensitive to ongoing distinctions between these groups of people. In the context of Paul's argument in Galatians, what he means by saying there is neither these things is not an absolute erasure of these categories, but he's saying that all different kinds of people in all of these different kinds of groups, and maybe even other groups and other kinds of distinctions that we could identify, have equal access to the blessing of Abraham, which is justification by faith in Christ, the seed of Abraham. That's what he's been talking about in Galatians 3. And he's, uh, he's nullifying the idea that Jews have a special track uh, for salvation, have a special uh, in with the blessings of Abraham. He's saying, no, the blessing is justification by faith, and all kinds of people have equal access to God redemptively through Christ. And that is a glorious gospel truth. Um, With regard to salvation, those categories mean nothing. All sorts of people without distinction have equal access. So if you are a 19th century Christian trying to use anti-black racism to justify slavery, or if you're a current day CRT advocate implying that white people can't be saved, those are anti-gospel issues. Because it does nullify the unity between these groups that Christ's, uh, Christ's gospel is supposed to create. Equal standing in Christ is a beautiful and foundational gospel truth, but it doesn't mean we ignore the categories of human distinction. Uh, you remember, we've looked at the pictures uh, in Revelation, both when Christ, the Lamb who was slain, is being extolled in Revelation 5.9 for the groups of people that he gave his life for, and redeemed, and then in verse seven, chapter seven, verse nine, when uh, John's reporting the group, the, the the crowd that he's seeing in heaven, both of them detail every tribe, tongue, people, and nation in heaven. 
There's this ethnic diversity among the redeemed that's part of the heavenly, eternal glory of Christ's work. It's not an incidental thing that we just leave behind in the grave um, when we die. So there's that misunderstanding of unity passages. Uh, The third problem is a misunderstanding of a loving response. Actually, before I go into this, I should just open it up. Any questions or pushback on those first, first two points? Misunderstanding the progressive sanctification or misunderstanding how to take these unity passages. Paul kept the law sometimes. Paul kept the law sometimes because uh, he was all things to all men and he didn't want to be a stumbling block to Jews. Is that kind of what you're thinking? In Acts, yeah, he goes to the temple to pay a sacrifice to keep a vow so as not to give offense to Jews, absolutely. So he's, he's not erasing the categories at all. Uh, between Jew and Gentile in his practice. That's a good point. Yeah, any other thoughts, questions? Yeah, Lord. I, I mean, this isn't super well thought out, but it just <laughs> popped into my head. It's interesting because Paul talked about these things then, and we see these same kinds of things being applied in life right now. Like we have someone who can't even define what a woman is. Mm-hmm. And there's it's not Jews and Greeks, but there's this whole CRT. Mm-hmm. So... It's nothing's new. Yeah, d- different. Um, this really discerning what kinds of distinctions are legitimate between people. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, nothing new under the sun. That's true. There's, um, yeah, it's a good point. You see, you see a lot of similar kind of activism, similar system of thought with regard to gender. Yeah, that's that's a good true point. That, that, could, be, that could be our next class, right? <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, Jeff. Yeah, you know, I see it in, with these issues that we're talking about, a lot of emotion mm-hmm. and feelings mm-hmm. that are entwined in, in what we think, how we mm-hmm. how we grasp all this stuff, and um, it's just I think it's really important that we try to separate. Those, even though it's mm-hmm. extremely difficult, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, but to try to rationally uh, know that we are emotional mm-hmm. beings and feelings, and uh, you know, they, they just they kind of wrap us up and, and what mm-hmm. we think. Try to separate that from how we really come to terms with these issues. Yeah, because so uh, you kind of need your fall into a certain category mm-hmm. and. Um, it's a really good point, Jeff. We we can all have a tendency with a, a, a fraught issue like this and many other issues. Uh, there's a lot of emotions, and there's good reason for that. But you're totally right that there can be a sense that emotion can lead us to knee-jerk reactions where we're not thinking carefully. And we're not exercising that kind of self-critical. You know, there's a lot in Proverbs about the, 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 the fool thinks he's wise, right? That there there can be a lack of self-criticism in how we evaluate our own thinking and sometimes when we're being driven by emotion um, it can blind us from considering or we, we can be failing to think am I really processing this correctly or is this just this feels really right to me and I kind of don't question it that can be the case I mean that's that can be the case all over the map on this issue as well as many others so that's a really good point um, that's yeah I appreciate that so in terms of how we how we pro- yeah how we think through this yeah Wilson this isn't really thought out well either. <laughs> we can all we can all qualify everything we say. But I appreciate the the biblical balance that you're trying to achieve by saying mm-hmm. that we should be Christians 
Mm -hmm. but I also understand that our ethnicities are purposeful, and God mm -hmm. gave them to us intentionally. Mm -hmm. And I can remember just instances growing up as uh, I'm a son of immigrant parents, mm -hmm. and I can remember instances, and this is to no one's fault, but instances where I felt ashamed of my Koreanness. Mm -hmm. uh, not because of anything that anyone was saying, per se, because those kinds of situations happen, but not mm -hmm. even because of that. But uh, th there were just stark contrasts between mm -hmm. my upbringing, the way that my parents spoke, uh, the kinds of things that I ate, mm -hmm. and uh, things that my friends ate who weren't Korean-Americans, and just an inner ashamedness. Of, mm -hmm. Why can't I live like they do or mm -hmm. live like they do? Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes the, the way that I would counter-argue that would be to say, no, don't think about that. We're Christians, mm. that's our primary identity. And that kind of caused me to not hate, hate would be too strong of a word, but you, you touched on this a little bit early on, where you said that uh, the same ethnicities can sort of hate one another. And mm. Right, right. Tension with, within one another. So I, I had those kinds of uh, mm -hmm. weird, interesting experiences. Yeah. So I appreciate the, I, I know it's not a perfect balance that we can always find, but mm -hmm. just to, to strive towards that's uh, been helpful. Thank you, Wilson. I really appreciate that that little little testimonial about just some of the dynamics as a as an uh, as an immigrant ethnic minority. Some of the ways in your childhood, just certain impressions are made that can make it really, yeah, really tempting to be ashamed of or dis or despise your 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 ethnic differentness than kind of the majority. Um, and that's something we're going to, Lord willing, talk about uh, not next week because we're not having equipping hour next week. We're eating. <laughs> but then the next week after that, we're going to talk about having a vision for the multi-ethnic people of God. And uh, the, the ethnic diversity of the people of God is a feature, not a bug. It's not, it's not, an in, it's not, either, it's not even just not a bug, but it's not an incidental detail. It's actually part of the point. And we talked about this when we talked about the missions uh, in our missions class, right? The all nations thing is kind of a huge part of the point of what God's doing redemptively in the world. But even what does that tell us about what to do with our ethnicity? It, whatever model we pursue and what to do, if, if our model is to suppress and um, kind of pretend it doesn't exist, pretend our ethnic distinctions don't exist. That doesn't seem consistent with the way that the Bible celebrates the ethnic diversity of the body of Christ. So, yes, there's a danger of taking pride in our ethnic distinctness and despising others. But like you said, Wilson, that we ought to be careful we don't just, our solution to that problem isn't that we just hate our, you know, hate our own or, hate, or, or, or just... Uh, think that the solution is just to pretend they don't exist or something like that. Yeah, Christina. Well, I need to touch on that a little bit, but on a different vein, like, when I see a white, as a white female, mm -hmm. when I see a white man kneeling on a mm -hmm. black man's neck and killing mm -hmm. him, there's this anger and shame mm -hmm. of the, like, how could you reflect white people this mm -hmm. way? And, and, and then Christians, when Christians are ugly and horrible and damaging to other people. Yeah, yeah. How can you do that? And, so, um, and, and certainly it can be like an indignant, self-righteous mm -hmm. anger there that is yeah, yeah. Um, forgetting what God has forgiven me of. Mm -hmm. But also there's that question of like how, like, you know, it's like, like we are supposed to police our own. So like, you mm -hmm. know, like, should it be we the ones that are, as Christians, calling out other Christians for this thing? So thank you for like even having this teaching in the first place. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's a, I appreciate that. Yeah, just that experience. There's so many different emotions and so many different layers to how we feel when people in our own ethnic group, both like Don said, are, are suffering and, and how we feel when they are causing suffering and, and when they're sinning in these ways. Um, yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, let's, let's move on and talk about um, the, the last critique here is misunderstanding of this just preach the gospel solution. It's, it's a misunderstanding of a loving response to the burdens of others. Um, <clears throat> just to put it briefly, just boiling this down to just preach the gospel is a very callous thing for people in the racial majority or ethnic majority to say. In view of the suffering and challenges faced by minorities. Now, I have to qualify that, of course. I'm always going to qualify that. I'm not saying that it's only majority group, majority group Christians that say just preach the gospel. It's definitely not. And I'm also not trying to characterize the experience of minorities as nothing but victimization and suffering. But part of what we're implying, if we uh, want to boil this down to just preach the gospel and be colorblind, what we're saying is, we may not be meaning this, but this is the implication of what we're saying. I don't want to hear about the negative experiences that you walk through as a minority in society or the church. If, if we were beating the drum of just preach the gospel and be colorblind, uh, not to put you on the spot, Wilson, but what you just shared with us, we would be subtly telling someone like, Wilson, don't tell me that. I don't want to hear that because that, that's just going to divide us. That's what we're, well, what we're communicating about that kind of testimonial. As we discussed last week, um, individuals of every ethnic group are fully capable of ethnic sin, but our experiences in society and church do differ depending on whether we're in the majority or the, or the minority, and even depending on which minority group we're in. Of course, there's, uh, and our experiences differ not only on ethnic and racial grounds, right? Uh, just any unlimited number of factors that give, make our experiences different. Uh, minor, and again, to put Wilson on the spot here, uh, minority experiences can uh, range from things that just make you feel other, especially as a kind of impressionable child, just imagining how that can, what that can uh, do in, in your heart, um, to more explicit discrimination and exclusion, to all the way to hatred. And, and I also want to be careful. I'm not saying that only minorities face it. You can be in a context where as an ethnic majority, you face sin like that. But the CRT approach uh, can have the tendency to boil racial minorities down to perpetual victims. And there are some Christian CRT opponents who have pointed this out, that uh, this is a a, a deficiency in CRT, and it varies from the biblical picture of man and sin. One author writes this, Scripture does not encourage us to think of ourselves as victims, but as criminals, fully complicit in Adam's rebellion and deserving of eternal judgment as a result, end quote. Unfortunately, this is a false either or. This is a false dichotomy. It is true that the Bible encourages us all to think of ourselves as criminals, fully complicit in Adam's rebellion. But the Bible also acknowledges the reality that people sin against people, and they thus create victims. If... uh, if you want proof that the Bible acknowledges the reality of victimhood, just read the Psalms. Uh, to say that the Bible teaches that we're sinners, not victims, is nonsense. There's no need to, dis- to, to choose between those two paths. So just an example, Psalm 3.1. O oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. This person is turning to God as a refuge in light of 
being pursued by human enemies. If you read the Psalms, this kind of thing comes up over and over. We're all victims of other people's sin. And we're all sinful victimizers of other people. And uh, among different people, we're going to find all sorts of different degrees and varieties of victimization over this specific issue of race. But the point I'm making is that people do suffer from ethnic sin in our racialized society and really anywhere the human race is found. People suffer from ethnic sin. These things hurt our brothers and sisters. They may hurt us. And it may be that we are hurting our brothers and sisters in ways that we don't realize over this. What does the Bible teach, uh, teach us to do about um, the struggles and suffering of our siblings in Christ? Should we say, don't worry about that. We just preach the gospel here. Do we say, you're a sinner, not a victim? Listen to Colossians 3.11 through the beginning of verse 12. This is a kind of parallel with Galatians 3.28. Paul says, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Period. Space. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Do you notice how the implication... So it's then. The implication of there is not Greek and Jew is what? Therefore, put on compassionate hearts. Our unity in Christ should make us extra sensitive to one another's suffering. And extra, uh, we should extra care to help bear their burdens and to at least want to be aware of them. We're told elsewhere in Romans twelve fifteen, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. And 1 Peter 3.8, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Uh, ignoring a problem doesn't make it go away. Saying that we're all one in Christ, so let's just preach the gospel and not think about ethnicity is not consistent with reality. We are one in Christ. And yes, we should Let's preach the gospel. Let's preach the gospel. But let's do so with sympathy, a tender heart, and brotherly love toward the varying experiences of our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is an absolutely necessary implication of the gospel. Christ worked for us. And I hope you see just in that Colossians 3, 11, and 12 that the compassionate hearts we exercise toward one another is, is a natural entailment of we are one in Christ Jesus. So, any thoughts or pushback or questions or reflections on that that last point about um, how we handle each other's struggles and suffering alright well we've looked at two different schools of thought today and uh, identified some problems with the solutions they proposed we have anti-racism and there are definitely some good points of, of counsel here some good common sense but there's, uh, they're put in a framework of a worldview kind of that, that's dominated by race, and everything ends up being about race, and it ends up really having no ability to heal, but actually uh, perpetuates the racial division it's seeking to address. And on the other hand, we looked at some of the strong opponents of CRT who suggest that we really ought not to think about ethnicity at all. We just preach the gospel and live in unity. It'll all kind of uh, take care of itself. And while we applaud the gospel centrality uh, and we desire to live at our unity with Christ, we know that's the goal that the gospel is supposed to accomplish among us. 
Uh, simply ignoring the issue is an unrealistic and an even uncompassionate way uh, to respond to the various ways that our brothers and sisters uh, suffer and struggle. So over the next few weeks, Lord willing, we're going to try to construct a more positive. It's always easier to knock down other people's ideas. Just stay tuned. We'll fix it all. No, um, <laughs> to try to construct a more positive vision biblically for um, how to walk through these difficult issues. We're not going to solve all of them, but to hopefully give biblical tools that will help us as a church continue to keep walking in humility, love, and truth over these matters. Uh, so uh, I will close this in prayer, and then it's kind of early, so there's just time to mingle, drink coffee, ask me questions, of course. Uh, both you can approach me afterward, or if you want to email or uh, discuss more at length, I'm glad to do that. But let's pray. God, we glorify you for the gospel, the work of Christ on our behalf to take away our punishment and death that we deserve for sin, whatever our ethnic heritage, whatever kinds of sin that we uh, are guilty of, and whatever any dimension of our background or, or whatever is true of us personally, we need the cross of Christ to be reconciled to you, and we glorify your name and praise you that the cross not only reconciles us to you, but to one another. And we desire that our unity would be one that's uh, ruled not by any uh, man-made or man-centered agenda, but the agenda that you have to glorify your name as your church. We pray that we would indeed be a people who exercise discernment and think carefully, and who, because of our oneness in Christ, put on compassionate hearts and are willing to really listen carefully to each other, and uh, walk together. There's a lot of foot washing needed. There's a lot of mutual uh, encouragement and sometimes rebuke and correction, but always patience, love, gentleness. And we pray that we would together grow up by, by the power of your spirit working in us through the word into the likeness of Jesus. Thank you for this time. And we pray it would be to the blessing of all involved in Jesus name. Amen.